Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Gen J Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Heffington, and this show is brought to you by your friends at Generation Joshua. As we travel around the country working with young leaders, we meet all sorts of amazing people who are working to change their corner of the world for the better. If you've ever been to one of our iGovern camps, you've probably heard from some of these people. But we thought that it would be awesome if we could sit down for some in-depth conversations and get their stories on the record so that we could share them with the greater Gen J community. This podcast is the culmination of that process, and we think that you're going to find these conversations encouraging and inspiring. So go ahead, pop in your headphones, connect to your Bluetooth speaker, whatever you got to do, and let's get into today's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Gen J Podcast. I am here today to have a conversation with Glenn Birch, the program administrator for Generation Joshua. In his role as program administrator, Glenn oversees the Generation Joshua Club program, and he also travels the country teaching teenagers about how our government works, how they can make a difference, and why it matters. Glenn first got involved in politics when he was 12 after his parents took him to a campaign rally for President George W. Bush's re-election campaign. Since that time, Glenn has volunteered on numerous political campaigns across the country and was elected to his county Republican committee shortly after turning 18. Although campaigns are where Glenn got his start in politics, he has grown to love the nuts and bolts of how government works and he has dug deeper into congressional procedure than any normal or rational person should. When he's not busy with politics and traveling for Generation Joshua, Glenn loves to read and serves as a regular volunteer with his church's youth ministry. So, Glenn, thanks for being on the show today. It's great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me on, Daniel. It's good to be here. We're recording this on a Friday for those of you listening. So how are you doing this Friday, Glenn? Ah, it's good. It's kind of good to be at the end of the week, but it's been a fun week. Memorial Day weekend last week was different in quarantine, but also just a lot of fun, relaxing and being able to spend time with friends as much as legally allowable right now. Sure. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm actually uh, this isn't even our topic today, but I'm very curious. I wish I kind of had a pulse on where our people are listening from around the country to this show, because in Virginia, we're still in a decent amount of lockdown. But I know there's other states that are way more open. So, you know, maybe at some point we'll we'll still be locked down like Virginia and California and everybody else will just be listening and pitying us or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. At least I'm finally in the same boat that you are as far as phase one in Virginia. That's right, because uh, Virginia for the, we're just going to nerd out for a second on Virginia's lockdown because Glenn and I live uh, in counties that are next door to each other, Loudoun County and Clark County and Loudoun County requested to stay locked down longer than Clark County. So I got to have my phase one freedom before my friends in Loudoun County got to have theirs. So it's been, it's been interesting. Yeah. We've been in phase one for about 11 hours now. So. Oh my goodness. How does it feel, Glenn? Does it feel different? (laughs) Uh, So far, nothing's different, but we'll see once I actually get out of my house, if anything feels different. There you go. All right. Well, hey, let's go ahead and jump in. I'm really excited to have a chat with you today. Um, and we have a lot to talk about. And uh, I've known you for years and gotten the honor and privilege to work with you for years. Um, but the thing I love about these podcast conversations is that sometimes just in the average flow of work and events and ministry or whatever, these questions just they don't just come up naturally in conversation. So I'm really excited. I, I you know, for anybody listening, I do not know uh, a lot of the answers that of the questions I'm going to ask him today. So let's go ahead and jump into it. Um, Glenn, first question. In your bio, we heard a lot of stuff related to politics about you got to uh, go to a campaign event for President George W. Bush. You've been part of your local Republican committee, all this kind of stuff. So what got you started in the world of politics? Yeah, so my family was always, like, kind of involved in politics. No no one in my family was, like, huge on the go out, do door-to-door walking or that type of politics, but they always voted. They always paid attention. I remember watching the 2000 presidential election and all that stuff. And then in 2004, for President Bush's re-election campaign, uh, 
with growing up in Pennsylvania, battleground state that year, President Bush yep. came and my family, my parents got tickets for us to go see him, thinking it'd be a cool experience to go see the sitting president of the United States, which totally. it was. But for me, at that point, I was 12. And okay. that, for some reason, as in my 12-year-old mind, I now had a connection with the president. And of course, yeah. <laughs> so that personal connection, even though I was hundreds of feet, hundreds of feet away from him when he was speaking... Uh, made me want to get make sure he got reelected so got home started doing door-to-door walking and phone banking for him and kind of the rest as i say is history it never stopped wow that's really cool um you got so you started knocking doors when you were 12 years old is that right that's right wow that's pretty that's pretty impressive that's that's basically as young as uh some of the people i've met who hang out with jen jay <laughs> yeah um so, so when you were doing that, was that just like, was your family already knocking doors or were you just kind of like, mom and dad, I want to do this. We got to find a way to do this. It was very much the mom and dad, I want to do this. We've got to find a way to do this. Um, okay. And so some of it was walking doors, like knocking on doors in my own neighborhood when I could do that by myself. Other times yep. it was dragging one of my parents out with me to come knock on doors. Wow. That's amazing. Um, did you, was that something that was kind of like a one election cycle thing for you or did it just literally keep going into the next, the next event, the next campaign, the next, whatever? It kept going. Um, so Pennsylvania is kind of like Virginia where we have elections every year. And right. so okay, yeah. that next year was county elections and I had made a, some connections with some of the people working in the county party. And so they reached out to me and I started doing campaigning and stuff the next year. And it just kind of continued year after year. Plus I found out about this program called Generation Joshua at that time and started to get involved in that, which gave me even more connections on how to get involved through student action teams and stuff. Okay. 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 This is perfect. Cause my very next question was going to be how did you get involved with Gen J? So, so you started doing volunteer campaigning when you were like 12. At what point after that, how long was it before you intersected with Gen J? And what was the first uh, program or, or aspect of Gen J that you connected with? So I don't know the exact time frame from when, it, like, when I got involved in Gen J, but I know it was sometime right around the same point where I started to fall in love with politics that... Okay. I saw an email from Homeschool Legal Defense Association about this new program they were starting called Generation Joshua. And right away, I'm like, Mom, you've got to sign me up for this. Um, first thing I wanted to do with Gen J was a student action team in 2004. But being 12 and neither of my parents being able to come along, I was too young right. to do that. Okay, um, sure. So the first thing I actually did with Gen J was a conference program. Um, at the CHAP, uh, Pennsylvania, the Christian Home Edu- Homeschoolers uh, Association of Pennsylvania conference um, cool. in 2005. And they came and did the presidential election simulation there, did that. And then later in 2005, throughout that year, got involved in a local club and then student action teams in 2005 in November. Wow. So it, so was that all in 2005 then? Yeah. Yep. Wow. 2005. That was, that was- May would have been the CHAP convention, and then we started a club, I think it was in June or July, and then in November, we, um, I actually came down to Virginia Beach area for a student action team. Oh, which was where I was at that point, so that's pretty cool. Um, what, uh, was your family the host family for that club, or was it like, did you do it with some friends, or how did that work? So we did that with some friends that... Um, I met and got to know at that CHAP convention that year. Um, so my family wasn't the host. We were actually about an hour away from where the club was meeting. Um, but thankfully... Oh my goodness, yeah, that is a long drive. It was a long drive. And my parents, until I turned 16 my, and got my license, my parents were faithful to drive me that hour once a month or more to get out to those club meetings. So very thankful wow. for my parents being willing to jump in and help me as I was getting involved in politics and my parents had no clue what I was doing. Yeah. 
No, that's that's a huge commitment, and that's really cool. It's funny because, and I, I mean this, no insult to anyone who's listening and can't drive far for a club, but I've had so many conversations with people, and they're like, oh, yeah, the, the, furthest, the closest club is, you know, 35, 40 minutes away. That's too far. And totally, that's too far for some people in their schedule. But then we have the other extreme, which is the diehards like yourself, where you're driving, you know, an hour, you're, you're driving two hours round trip every time you have a Gen J meeting. So good for you. <laughs> that's, that's good. Um, so as you were, as you were ramping on with Gen J, you started with the conference program with that presidential simulation. Was that I elect at that point, or was that like an early version of a simulation? That was an early version. I mean, if you've done our I elect program recently, it's very similar to what that program was, but this was back before we had the names for the different programs and that okay. presidential election program was at that point, the only conference program that generation Joshua did. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Okay. So yeah, so you were back, you were back at, at maybe not the infancy of generation Joshua, but pretty much yeah. like you, you were, you were one of the first generation of students to be involved like that. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, and that's really interesting because uh, one thing that, that I've always liked is, is I can relate to your path of kind of somebody who's working for Gen J now but got involved as a student because I had a similar story that maybe I'll talk about sometime. But um, you and I both have the perspective of having been involved in a local club, seen it back in the day, and of course it changes and everybody has their own spin on it. But we kind of we kind of have that, that insider perspective, you know, of having come through it. At, at some point. Yeah. And that's exactly why, like, I wanted to work with Generation Joshua. Didn't plan on working there full time, but wanted to do stuff with Gen J was it had such an impact on me as a student and I wanted to give back. And it's been so much fun getting to work with you and the rest of the team at Gen J over the last 10 years now. Wow. That's amazing. It makes me feel old, but that's really cool. That's super cool. Um, where, so, you know, right now you work for Gen J and we'll, I want to talk a little more about kind of how that came to be, but flipping back to, you know, 12 year old Glenn going to the, to the president Bush event, all that kind of stuff. Where were you coming from? Where, where did you grow up and what kind of town was it? What kind of atmosphere? You said you're in Pennsylvania, but where were you? Yeah. So I grew up in a small town or smallish town of about 15,000 people called Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Um, basically in the middle of nowhere in old coal country. Um, probably very few, if any of the listeners here would have ever heard of Pottsville. Um, one of our biggest claim to fames is we are the true 1925 NFL champions, even though oh, the NFL okay. uh, still denies it. But that's a story <laughs> for another day. Uh, I feel like <laughs> I feel like there's a backstory there. <laughs> There is, and I'm not sure that it's one that would be interesting to the listeners, but if you okay. find out it is, I'd be more than happy to come back later and we can talk about it and other sports stuff. Okay. So maybe we'll need to have maybe we'll need to have the Gen J Sports Review podcast with Glenn, at least do an episode of that. Oh, I would totally be down for that. Okay. Okay. We should I mean seriously, we've done the March Madness brackets. Maybe we'll need to like incorporate some of that into the podcast next time we hopefully are able to have March Madness. Yeah, hopefully we'll actually get March Madness next year. We just got March Mad. <laughs> not Yeah. Well, not <laughs> it's a very different kind of March Madness this year. Yeah. It's just March March frustration and anxiety. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. Um very cool. So anyways, Pottsville, Pennsylvania, 15,000 people. Um, I had never heard of that city or town until you, until, you know, you told me that's where you grew up at one point. Um, however, I can tell anybody who's listening, go to Pottsville, Pennsylvania, because that was where we had that amazing pizza, wasn't yep. it? Roma Pizzeria in Pottsville. Still okay, the best Roma pizza I've pizzeria. ever had. Not a sponsor of the podcast yet, but uh, amazing pizza restaurant in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. They had... Um, what did they have? Like something like a, was it like a garlic knot or like some like little like appetizer bread thing that was super good? Yeah. I don't remember what we got the time that uh, I took you and some of the other Gen J staff there, but um, like that was always my favorite pizza place. I'll be honest, coming down to Virginia after that was a letdown because okay. even though we have different 
good small pizzerias down here. Nothing yeah. compares to what I grew up on there in Roma. I I can confirm that it's pretty incredible. So uh, maybe we'll maybe Pottsville tourism industry will have to thank the Gen J podcast at some point when you know the show blows up and we get like <laughs> you know fifty people a day coming to see Glenn's hometown in pizzeria. You know. You might have to get some sort of a kickback going on there. Yeah. Um, outside of Roma, there's not all that much in Pottsville to see. But if you're ever in Pottsville or near Pottsville, you definitely want to stop by Roma. That's amazing. So um, that's where you grew up pretty much your whole life. Like, did you bounce around or was that kind of home? Nope, that was home. Uh, my family moved after I went to college. But until I went to college, uh, that was always my home. Um still have family up there. My dad's was born and raised in Pottsville and so have deep, long family ties there to the Pottsville area. That's really cool. Would you say, you said it was old coal country. So was that, was there kind of a political leaning of the town or was it like a mixture or what kind of like, was it, you know, deep conservative territory or somewhere in the middle or what? So our County was pretty conservative um, we were the city and the county seat of the county, so we were kind of that more mixture of yeah. um, Democrat-Republican, but even there, a lot of the Democrats were more your old-school conservative blue-dog Democrats, not yeah. some of the more yeah. liberal uh, Democrats that you see today in that. Sure. Sure. That And that kind of makes sense, because you have, like... It seems like sometimes in those in those like older industry based towns, you kind of see a political mixture, but with with not super radical on either side. Yeah, that's the difference between the Republican candidates and the Democrat candidates there was so much smaller than some of the other places. And you're thinking of here in northern Virginia, so much different Um than the candidates that we have here when we have a Republican and a Democrat running against each other. Yeah. Yeah. The differences. And if, I don't know, maybe it's just, you know, perspective of uh, paying more attention over the years, but it just seems like the differences around here keep getting wider and wider. But uh, I, I wouldn't mind going back to some of those more, more uh, nuanced differences between the, the candidates. Yeah. I wish we um, could get back to that. We've definitely lost so much of the nuance in politics um, yeah, that's, uh, actually that, that's a really good, that's a really good transition to what I wanted to ask you about next. And one thing that you even mentioned in your bio was, uh, I think you, I think you, what you gave me said that you pay way more attention to house and Senate procedure than any normal or rational person should. So, so, you know, according to Glenn himself, he pays an irrational amount of attention to, to what you might call legislative culture and procedure. So, Glenn, why is that so interesting to you? Honestly, like that, I'm not sure why it's so interesting to me. Um, it's just, it's always like ever since I started paying attention to stuff and this came from Generation Joshua um, and the first time I was at camp with a congressional simulation, um, just falling in love with that procedure and studying that. And I think one of the things that I've come to like is there's an order that comes from having that type of procedure, the rules, the precedent, and everyone's operating in the same framework. You're still advocating for your positions, but there's an order and... Uh, from that history, a decorum that often comes that you don't see outside of it. Um, and just the protections for the rights of the minority, making sure that whether you're in the majority, whether you're in the minority, you have the right to be heard and can stand up for your position. Um, I've come to love that. And then just digging deep into how that works and the differences between the House and the Senate and state legislatures and other bodies just uh, absolutely fascinated me. That's really cool. I I can confirm that I have I can personally attest to having seen Glenn spend hours researching this stuff, talking through it. I think uh, I got a message one time that like you had spent like something to like the early hours of the morning, just like sitting as like one of like the only people in the Senate gallery or something for some bill that was passing. Is that am I remembering that right? That's correct. Um, 
I would go into the Senate gallery fairly regularly, uh, and I'll try not to go too deep into the the weeds on this but whenever the senate you can, it, you can go pretty deep i mean you know it's, it's this is this is your episode yeah. so so go for it so whenever the senate is considering the budget resolution um they will have what they call a voterama um where under the law like there's specific amount of time that they have and every member of the senate can propose amendments and they have to vote on all of them and some of the procedural things that you can normally do to stop people from uh, proposing and bringing up amendments doesn't apply here in the budget voterama. So I've gone in to see that a couple of times and have stayed there in the Senate gallery watching until I think the record was leaving after they adjourned at 3.30 a.m. one time. Oh my gosh. I have definitely stayed up till 3.30 a.m., but usually it's for something... Different. More interesting, <laughs> and possibly not not as worthwhile. I don't know. I think, I think uh, I've spent uh, birthday parties playing Call of Duty till three thirty a.m. more than I've stayed up till then for politics. If I'm being perfectly honest, well, like I said, most rational people wouldn't do that. That's that's pretty cool though. Um, so and you kind of went into it a little bit there with your answer. You were talking about you care some of the things that the, the, the culture and the procedure of, of the legislative bodies do is it protects the voice of the minority. It protects, you know, the ability of everybody to be heard. What, what else, or even if you want to elaborate on how some of that works, what else makes it important to you as far as like, cause there's a lot of people that look at the house and Senate. They're like, this is confusing. This is stiff. This is stuffy. It seems like, you know, just kind of old school formality for no reason. I don't think that's the case. Clearly, you don't think that's the case. But but why is that? What would you say to somebody who's like, what what is going on here? It just seems like we're, you know, parading around being silly almost, you know? Yeah. And like for some people, they'll see what goes on in like the Parliament of the United Kingdom. If they see a little bit of a glimpse of that and they'll see some of the heckling that happens there in the House of Commons and stuff. And then they'll come over to the U.S. system and it can almost feel stuffy the way that it works. Um, and I personally, I love the UK system and think that there could be some place for some good natured heckling at times to add some <laughs> levity. But I think the idea behind how the US House and Senate operate is making sure that everyone has a chance to be heard. Um, and so usually they'll operate, especially in the House, you have time limits on debate that are always equally divided between the Republican and the Democrats. So whoever's in the majority, whoever's in the minority, no matter how many more people the majority has, both sides get an equal amount of time to stand up for their side and to advocate their case. Um, in the Senate, you have those protections on the rights of each individual senator to stand up and advocate, and you have the possibility of a filibuster there just to help protect and make sure that you can stand up even if you are the only person standing for that mm -hmm. position. And I think that's vitally important for us to make sure that everyone's heard, especially in a country this large. We have people yeah. from all sorts of different backgrounds and just thinking where I grew up in Pennsylvania, very different from even an hour away in Harrisburg or two and a half hours in Philly or three and a half to four hours in Pittsburgh, having yep. people that can represent my constituency, my district, what it what matters to these people is so vital to make sure that when we're passing legislation at the national level, it takes into account what everyone needs and tries to make sure that what works in central rural Pennsylvania also works in New York City or Los Angeles. Um, yep. And so I think that's one of the things that I love is being able to make sure everyone gets that right to be heard. I also personally love the fact that Congress is designed to be slow. And okay. a lot of people don't like that. Um, yeah, it's usually one of the complaints. Yeah. That's it's often one of the complaints that people has have on Congress is that it's slow, it's inefficient. And my answer is yes. And that's by design. They the founding fathers did not want 
us to just change all the time. They wanted it to be a steady ship. And so by that, you're not rocking the boat, changing things all the time. And so the okay. Senate, uh, this was a quote from George Washington talking about how the Senate was supposed to be like a saucer on which you would put tea to cool. The House would be uh, more, since it's directly elected by the people from smaller constituencies, that's where you get much more passions. It's also the larger body and stuff. And so you can have stuff that gets ramrodded through the House. And we even see that to this day. The House sure. protects the rights of the minority to be heard, but the minority party can't actually stop anything from happening if a majority agrees that they want to pass something. Yep. The Senate's not that way. The Senate has never been that way. Um, the Senate has always been a much slower body, the more deliberative body, to make sure that what passes out of the House is a rational, thought-through uh, plan and policy that will equally apply to everyone and would be good for the entire country. And when you rush through stuff, you end up with what, the quote from Nancy Pelosi of, we've got to pass the bill to find out what's in it. Right, and right. That's, just, that's not a good way to do policy. And when you rush stuff, you end up with half-baked policy ideas, half-baked things that become law and are unenforceable or just don't work for large portions of the country because of stuff that wasn't thought through as they rushed to pass it. That's that's fascinating that even and I love hearing you talk about it, because, I mean, even just in that response, you've even kind of contrasted some of the strengths and weaknesses of both both chambers in in Congress, where you have, you know, you have the House with that really good representation, that very more democratic feel. But then the, the value of the Senate is that, you know, not that they're dragging their feet, but that they're taking their time. Like it, it almost reminded me of the of Treebeard in The Lord of the Rings, where he's like, "Don't be hasty." You know, it's that that more measured and thoughtful response at times. Yeah, that's a great example of it. Is just that idea of don't be hasty and to think through stuff. That's really cool. Um, now, would would it be fair to say that you have a favorite chamber of Congress? Definitely. Um, I definitely like the Senate a lot more than the House. I think okay. both of them, when it comes to the U.S. government, both of them are essential, fill, fulfilling sure. different roles. Um, of course. But I definitely, I like the Senate. I like the smaller body. Um, the six-year terms lead to more collegial um, respect for each other normally. Uh, you hear okay, stories yep. of senators getting to know people from across the aisle, both sides, yep. getting to know each other, getting to know the families. And then very rarely do you have the personal attacks there that you have in the House somewhat, and then especially in the broader political spectrum. Yep. But you have people saying, we're here, our state sent us here, we have to work together, and you're in here for two, four, six more years. Right. We've got to work together somehow and find a way to work together. That's really cool. That's neat. D d uh, obviously, you can't predict the future, but is there ever a chance that we would see a, a U.S. Senator Glenn Birch? I have a hard time seeing that happening um, because I really don't actually like I love campaigning for other people. Uh -huh. I cannot see myself wanting to go through the process of campaigning for the United States Senate, running a statewide campaign for myself. But right. if a vacancy were to occur and a set, uh, governor were to offer me the seat, I'd have a very hard time saying no. Okay, so as if you can be appointed to the Senate, that you'd be down, but just not the whole like self promotion campaign, go through the whole slog of it. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Maybe, uh, maybe if any of our Gen J students become a governor in a state you happen to live in, we can work something out. <laughs> yeah. So all the Gen J but, students can just come, move to Virginia, run for governor here, and then appoint me if we ever get a vacant seat. That's right. Yeah, and our senators here in, in Virginia seem to hang around for a very long time, so we might have to wait a while, but that would be cool. That's true. Um, very neat. Um, so final question on the, well, I don't know, maybe it's not the final question, but final question I'm thinking of right now on that kind of legislative procedure and, and the House and the Senate and all that that you're really passionate about. 
Is there ever a time, you know, we, we kind of talked about the value of it. We talked about the benefits. Are there, are there, has there ever been a time where you've noticed a drawback or a, a negative to that, that is more of a hindrance instead of a help? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I would say one of the things is just like when it, I'll try to do one for both chambers. Um, okay. And I think one of the things on the house side with the way that it has uh, got into the power of the speaker and the power of the majority means a minority member in the house of representatives, not, it's not that they have no power, but they don't right. have a lot of power or influence. Yep. And, the power of a senior member of the majority is very much outplaced to the power of a new freshman member of the majority or just about anyone on the minority. And so you can see in some ways the advent and growth of party politics, uh, voting as a party and the idea of, party unity and you don't buck your party the number of party line votes we're seeing i think has led to a lack of discourse debate and discussion in the house of representatives and a lot more of the speaker of the house with a couple of his or her key allies drafting the legislation and then putting it out and basically saying to their members you will vote for this right Right. It's like, yeah, yeah, we do see a lot of that. You're totally right. So I see that as a downside in the House. On the Senate side, I think one of the downs, like one of its strengths is also in a way the downside. And that's the power of an individual member of the Senate is great on people who are standing up for principle. I think of... um, some former senators who were known for standing up on principle and using their power as an individual senator to slow or stop things. Uh, Former Senator Tom Coburn was nicknamed Dr. No because he would block (laughs) stuff, but he had respect from people all across the aisle because they knew when he would do that, he was not doing that for his own political ambition, but he was doing that because of principle and what he believed was right. Okay, sure. And I think we're seeing a lot of senators with presidential ambitions. And when you look at the 2016 presidential primary for the Republican side, the um, 2020 presidential election uh, on the Democrat side for a while, the number of senators that were running. And so you have senators who are more willing to use their power, not just out of principle, but out of a, this will give me a better shot at getting elected. If I block this and I'm known for this, it's going to increase my support among whatever the base is. Yeah. Um, And so I see the strength of it being the individual senator having a lot of power and abilities to slow stuff is yep. also a weakness when people move from working on principle to working out of political reasons looking for their own political benefit. Okay. That's that's fascinating. I think that's really insightful. Um, yeah, it's we, we definitely see a time where there's – it's kind of like a – almost like brand building – in the Senate sometimes, whereas, I mean, maybe in the House, too. We've seen grandstanding in both chambers. but Yes, very much can, so. Yeah, you can see, uh, yeah, I, I won't name names right now because there's probably a lot more people who do it than I'm thinking of. But it's like, it, it seems like people will kind of just get up there and, like you said, be, be become that person that's known for this thing that they assume is going to be politically advantageous down the road. Um. That's that's a really good insight. Thank you. Um, this is actually a good segue into my other question I had on this, which is, as long as I've known you in the conversations we've had with politics and all this, um, you tend to be a person, I would say, who doesn't tend to agree with a policy or a position or a viewpoint just because somebody comes from your side of the aisle. And 
I think I think that that's that's pretty good and wise. Um, so would you say that, in your opinion, it's important to avoid what you might call political bandwagons? Yeah, I think it definitely is important to avoid political bandwagons and jumping on something just because your favorite politician is advocating for it or your least favorite politician is advocating against it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're seeing that with a lot of social media and stuff right now, there's a confirmation bias side of stuff that I see Senator X, Governor X, whoever that I like pushing this position. So I'm going to jump on board with it. And I have all these things here that support my position and anyone else who's advocating something else is stupid. Their stuff is wrong. And I think we just, We've taken out a lot of discernment. Yep. And I think that's important for us to get back, especially as Christians, is to look through and say, okay, I like this person, I respect this person, but is the policy that he or she is pushing at this time on this specific issue, is this right or wrong? And working Mm -hmm. through that and being able to say about a politician, I voted for this guy, I don't like this position he's pushing. Or I didn't vote for her, but I like this position and she's right here. And being able to say just because you've got an R after your name doesn't mean you're right or wrong on everything. Just because you get a D after your name doesn't mean you're right or wrong on everything. But evaluating the individual policies. And it's hard. It takes work to do that. But I think it's vital for us to do that and to evaluate policies not based on who's pushing it, but based on is it right or not. Yeah, that's that's important. Um, I think a tension that can come with that sometimes, at least, because I would say that personally, I'll just be I'll just be honest about myself. Is like I I that's always my goal is to be nuanced, thoughtful, this kind of stuff. But sometimes, I think I've fallen into situations where I'm trying to be like the discerning and nuanced voice, but what I kind of end up at least sounding like, and maybe sometimes it even becomes my attitude at times, is like, I'm like, no, I'm just more nuanced than you. And I care more than you. And I know more than you. And it just seems really, there's a word called like contrarianism that I've heard thrown around with politics that I think I've probably fallen into at times in pursuit of trying to be discerning and nuanced and not just jump on a bandwagon because I'm talking to somebody who, who, you know, is, is on the bandwagon. So, so, how do you balance that? How do you be truly discerning and nuanced without just becoming somebody who's like, no, you don't get it. I'm smarter. I'm deeper. You're wrong. Oh, that's that's a good question. It's also convicting because as you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, I struggle with that so often of falling into that contrarian mindset. Um, and so I definitely don't do this perfectly. But I think one of the things that I strive towards is fulfilling kind of the James one nineteen idea of be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Um, okay. And I have tried, and again, I'm not perfect on this at all, but trying to listen a whole lot more than speaking. Um, okay. Yep. And so I think that's one of the things that's a good thing to start is you have someone coming from an opposite position um, politically or just anything coming from different position, different perspective, listen to them. Make sure that you're actually listening, not to respond with a political argument, but listening for a, why do you believe what you believe? And mm-hmm. is there stuff that I can glean from this? Are you right? Am I wrong? Be willing to listen and think through that. Um, and I think we also need to be careful in the way that we ask questions And I am definitely guilty of, at times, asking questions where I'm trying to find information, but not asking it in a way that shows that, asking it in a way that comes across as condescending. And so I think it's important for us to listen and to ask questions of people, but make sure that we're not a, well, why, like, asking them in a condescending, how on earth could you believe that type of mindset, but instead be a... Oh, and one person who does this really well is Jeremiah Lorg, who's like, that's an interesting perspective. Can you 
fill in the blank. What is the question that you have on it? And be able Mm -hmm. to do that. But starting out with the, that's an interesting perspective. I haven't heard that before. Or maybe a, you said this, this is what I've heard. This is my experience. How do we relate these? But being willing to ask questions and then listen to their response and not do a mindset that I fell into way too much when I was doing debate in college of listening not to understand what they're saying, but listening so that way I could respond with my next argument to win the debate and win the round. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's important. That's, and it's difficult too. That's, I, I can relate. It is like, as, as I'm saying that, you know, it's all, this is stuff I strive towards, but I can think through even just to this past week of times talking with people on different aspects of the coronavirus response by the government and times where I realize afterwards, like, oh, I should not have asked that question in that way, or I wish uh-huh. I wouldn't have said that. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I I think it's, it's important to, it's still, it's still worth talking about these goals, even though I think both of us are on here saying we don't get it perfectly. And, and uh, let's be honest, most people aren't going to get it perfectly, but it's still, it's still important to think about. And then, and then maybe we'll, maybe we'll get it more often than we, than we don't, you know, um, or at least grow in it. Yeah. Um, you, uh, you've thrown out several scripture references as we've talked, which I think is fantastic. Um, and I'm not saying this is the reason why, but it just reminded me that you grew up as a pastor's kid. You grew up, um, I've, I've heard that as part of your story before. And so I don't know if you'd care to take a few minutes and kind of tell us what you took away from that experience. Some of the positives, some of the negatives. One of the reasons I ask is because I know that in our Gen J audience, we have a lot of students that are the kids of people in ministry the kids of leaders of organizations or groups or movements or something like that. And I think that there's some, some relevancy there that is, could, could be interesting or helpful for somebody listening. Yeah. So one thing, and the listeners who've been to camp have heard me talk about some of this before, but one of the things with being a pastor's kid is there's generally like a expectation that you're going to have it all together um that you're going to be a good christian kid taking after your parents as godly examples um and that can range from a really healthy view that i feel like we should have of any kid hoping and helping strive helping them strive to take after their parents if their parents are godly examples but can go Mm -hmm. from that to an idea of that an idea that you have to be this perfect kid or it proves that there's something wrong with your parents, that your dad isn't fit to be a pastor if you're not that perfect Christian kid because he can't control his household well. Um, Okay, yeah, yeah. And that stuff that I've heard talked about, I've heard other pastor's kids saying that they have felt that way. Um, And I think it's important for pastor's kids to remember and kids of any leaders anyone who falls under that kind of pressure of you have to be good to reflect well on your parents mm-hmm. is that it's still okay to struggle you probably are going to struggle most teenagers have issues most right. adults have issues definitely <laughs> don't try to hide it don't try to bottle it up don't try to act like everything's okay be willing to talk to people be willing to talk to your parents or talk to other people, depending on who you have in your life. Don't feel like because your parent is this leader, this whoever it is, whether it's in the church or some other cult, some other uh, framework of being a leader, realize that it's okay to go through the same struggles that just about any teenager does and to ask yeah. the questions and to go to people for help that's not going to reflect poorly on your parents, or at least it shouldn't. If you're just going with a, I'm struggling with this, can you help me? And I've seen so many pastor's kids who have bottled everything up, have fallen apart, and way too many who've walked away from the faith at the end. And that's 
one of the things that I hate seeing, and I want to see more people be willing to, as a pastor's kid, as missionary's kid, as leader's kids, to be willing to open up about struggles that they have, to talk to yeah. people, and to see that just because my dad was a pastor doesn't mean that my life is perfect. Yeah, that's important. And the, I think the tough thing is, is that, that like, I think you're totally right, that that is the perspective that that is, like, healthy, that is biblical, that is important for, for growth and consistency and all that. But you'll run into people out there who are not viewing it in a similar way. And they're like, they will be that kind of voice of judgment or condemnation or something saying, you know, why, why aren't you perfect? You're the pastor's kid, right? You know, that like, that's the struggle. It had, is that something you faced in that situation? Yeah. And that's like, I'm saying all of this stuff as the talk to people, be willing to open up and get help as someone who did not do that as a teenager. Okay. As someone okay. who was trying to put on that mask of being the perfect Christian kid, of being a good Christian kid, and seeing how, like, how drastically that affected my life, um, and just all the negative consequences of putting on a mask, not dealing with the actual issues and problems, yep. um, and so that's where I'm coming to pastors, kids, and others saying. You need to find people that you can talk to. Who that's going to be depends on your situation. Maybe it's your yeah. parents. Hopefully you should be able to talk to your parents. That's definitely step one to go to. But then other people who can also come along and help you depends on your church and where you're at and stuff. But yep. don't just bottle it up. Don't put on a mask trying to be the good Christian kid when your life is falling apart inside because yeah. you need help. I needed help, and it wasn't until after I got to college that I really started to be willing to open up about stuff and just see how much of my life changed when I was willing to start to talk to people as opposed to bottling it all up inside. I think that's really powerful. I think that's a, a fantastic challenge and encouragement for, for anybody, for, I mean, honestly for anybody, but especially for people who might have grown up with a little more scrutiny and a little more pressure just because of the role that their parents had, you know? Um, so thanks for, thanks for that perspective. Um, all right. I want to, I, I don't want to keep you for too much longer. I've been loving this conversation and I just realized the time has kind of been flying. Um, I don't know if it feels that way on your end, but I was just like, Oh wow, we've almost been here for an hour or something. Yeah, it does not feel like it's been anywhere near that long for me. Cool. Okay, good, good. Then we're on the same page. Um, I was worried you're going to say, yeah, I feel like it's been 90 <laughs> minutes, Daniel. <laughs> um, okay. So, um, just a few more questions as we wrap up. We talked earlier, uh, about how you got connected with Gen J in, um, was it 2005? Am I remembering that uh, right? 2004 was when I first joined Gen J. 2005 uh, was when I started getting like actually doing events involved. and stuff with yeah, Gen yeah. J. Okay. Like, okay, cool. So 2005. You joined as a student. You were part of a club. You did the local events. You did the conference events, all that. You did the SATs, all that kind of stuff. Now you're part, and you have been for a while, part of the core Gen J national staff team. What, either regarding the nation, regarding politics, and you can take this any way you want it, but what part of your perspective has changed and what has remained consistent from your first interaction with Gen J and now to where you are today with your role in Gen J's activities across the country? Oh, so much of my perspective has changed over time. Um, I'd say the one thing that's probably stayed consistent is the importance of young people to get involved. Um, okay. Young people, whether that's being involved in ministry in the church, being involved in politics and stuff, young people can be active, can make a huge difference, even as teenagers. And so the importance of teenagers getting involved, doing stuff. And Daniel, you and I get to see this all the time with Gen J of kids doing amazing things, whether it's yeah. one-off stories of individual teenagers doing something to a group on a student action team that, uh, through their hard work, changes the course of an election. Totally. Teenagers can make a huge difference. And so that's one perspective that has definitely stayed the same. Um Otherwise, like, I've just 
so much of my perspective has changed, and I hope it's a good maturing over time, but I was not, like, everything that I talked through earlier about discernment and listening and being slow to speak, quick to hear, listening to other people's perspectives, um, that is not who I was as a teenager. I was okay. a very hardline, my way or the highway, I know what's right perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so over time, a lot of that has changed, realizing there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. And that's me yeah. today. That was especially true. Now, as I look back at some of the stuff I said as a young kid, um, I love and I hate the Facebook memories feature okay, sure. <laughs> because <laughs> right. looking back through, I see so many great memories of awesome times and things. And then I see stupid things that I posted on social media oh, yeah. a decade ago. And oh yeah, just like so much of my perspective, the way that I look at other people, the way that I try to listen to people who disagree with me has yep. changed significantly. That's cool. I mean, that's, that's growth. So that's, that, that gives hope for any anybody listening who's like wondering if they've got it figured out or if they're going to regret what they're saying now in a few years like yeah try try not to be try not to set yourself up for that but there's also hope that you can have a lot of it eh, you you can be rough around the edges right now and and still have a real path of growth forward not that anybody's perfect today but but there's growth you it, know exactly that's all of life would hopefully be growing to be more mature. And as a teenager, you are definitely going to post and say stuff that you later look back on. And for me, sometimes it's a, I was completely wrong on that issue. Other times it's, I still hold the same perspectives, the same like policy view, but I wish I would have expressed it differently. Um, yeah. And there's just stuff like there will be growing experience. You are going to look back on your teenage years and some of the stuff is going to be, I can't believe I did or said that. Um, yep. But granted, that doesn't change. There are things I look back on just last year and I can't believe I said it that way. Sure. Sure. Same. Um, that's really cool. Uh, final, final wrap up questions. I've been kind of asking since we are recording this podcast currently during the lockdown, I want to ask a few questions about your experience with the coronavirus lockdown. I think everybody's sick of here. If you're not sick, I think everyone's probably sick of the lockdown. I think everyone's probably even more sick of talking about it. But we got to ask. We got to ask. I just got to hear. They're probably they haven't heard from you probably. So let's let's let me just ask you a couple questions. How uh, how have you been surviving the lockdown? How how has it been? Has it been a massive struggle? Has it been massively easy? What's how has your life changed during this lockdown? Ah. Uh. I mean, one of the big changes, and this is going to sound so weird to most of people listening, but my amount of socialization has gone through the roof thanks to this <laughs> lockdown. Um, Seriously? Yeah. So for those who don't know, I am a huge introvert. Um, if True. Myers, like, I don't know Enneagram stuff. Um, Myers-Briggs, I'm 85% or higher introvert, depending on when I take the Myers-Briggs test. Okay. Um, and so normally, I don't go out of my way to be around people. My office, when we're working at the office, is kind of secluded from everyone else. So I don't ha- always have a ton of socialization through the workday. I will often come home and spend time in my room reading. Um, yeah. And now, thanks to the lockdown... I am so sick of spending time in my bedroom because that's also become my office that five o'clock hits. I'm done with work and I go out and I hang out with the other guys in my house and I have been around them and socializing and stuff way more than just about any other three month period of my life. Wow. Okay. That's, that's, uh, I get like when you describe it, it makes sense. But I feel like that's like kind of the opposite of what everybody else, everyone else, like I'm seeing all the posts, but I haven't seen my friends in forever. I've, I need to hang out with people. And you're saying you've actually hung out with your fellow human beings more yeah. than you would normally. And that's, there's definitely a lot of people that I haven't been able to see in person in a long time. And I can't sure. wait. 
I can't wait to get back into the office and have actual staff meeting as opposed right. to virtual staff meeting. Oh, um, yeah. I can't wait to get back to church um, and see some of my friends from there in person. But generally speaking, I have been around people a whole lot more than normal. And I know that is the exact opposite of most of my friends who are posting stuff yeah. on social media about the lockdown. That makes sense. I think I think the common ground is that whoever, whatever your, your home situation is, whether it's immediate family, roommates, parents, kids, whatever, you are being thrown together. I think everybody can relate to being thrown together with those people, possibly a lot more than they would have normally. If they have any normal routine that's like they go to work or they go to school or, or, or something like that, you're, you're seeing a lot less of that. I've, you know, for me, it's been my my wife and my daughters usually i i say goodbye in the morning head off to the office and now we're around each other kind of 24 7 except when i record a podcast from home and they go out on a walk or something so that the house is quiet <laughs> like they're doing right now um all right cool so uh final i think i got two more questions for you you had mentioned that uh, even in your your uh intro that you like to read and you also I'm guessing, have had plenty of time to read during the lockdown if that's something you want to do. So what what have you been reading recently? What's what's impacted you? I don't care if it's fiction, nonfiction, whatever. Yeah, so I have been doing a good amount of reading. Um, I think last night I just finished book number 30 for this year. Oh um, my gosh, that's a lot. Now, granted, the one last night was only 32 pages. Um, so it was a short okay. booklet. Yeah. The other 29 were much longer than that. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot of reading. That that one that I read last night, like, it's hard to say that that's going to be the most impact because I just, like, I just read it. But it was a book by J.C. Ryle, who was the first bishop of Liverpool in England. Um, okay. And it's a booklet called A Call to Prayer. And just as I was reading through that, just so many challenges on, like, his first three or four pages, he ends every paragraph, like after going through reasons why you should pray, ends with, so I ask you, do you pray? And just going through that was such a challenge to me, realizing just the power of prayer, the importance of prayer, and how I have a tendency to downplay it. Um, mm -hmm. And so it definitely reinvigorated my passion to spend time in prayer. That's really cool. And the the author was Bishop J.C. Ryle? Yes. Yep. What? John Charles Ryle. Okay. When was this written? Like, was this like, I'm assuming it was a long time ago if he was the first bishop of Liverpool. Yeah, this would have been back in the 1800s. Okay. Um, I can't, I don't know exactly when that booklet was written, but I know yeah. he died in 1900. So it was sometime okay. in the 1800s um, okay. that he would have written this. That's really cool. But that's, I also, right before reading that book by him, I just finished a biography of him. And he is a fascinating figure from church history, someone who embodied the standing up for what he believes, um, yeah. even when there was kind of a theological and doctrinal war going on in the Church of England at the time. Um, oh, wow. Okay. He was one who would stand up and oftentimes was standing alone in the fight okay. for, the, for what he believed. But at the same time, people from all different perspectives would come together and appreciate him for the way that he did that, the way he would listen to other people, the way he okay. would respond to them. Um, and so that was just a, another challenge to me of being like him, even if I find myself being the only person standing for a position, right? making sure that I do that well and do that for the right reasons. Yeah. No, I think I think that's amazing. And honestly, I think that's a fantastic place to wrap up today. And I think that's a challenge that that if we're honest, each one of us can take to heart from wherever we're at. That's that is never going to be a bad guiding principle. So thank you, Glenn. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. Thanks for hanging out and answering all the questions. And I think this was a great, a great conversation. I appreciate you making the time. Ah, you're welcome. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. And Hope we get to do this again sometime soon, preferably be able to do this in person. I would love that. That That is the goal. All right, Glenn. Thank you, everybody. Uh, we're signing off here. We'll talk to you later. 
Hey friends, if you enjoyed today's episode of the Gen J Podcast, go ahead and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, most of the other major podcast sites and apps. Uh, if you really liked the show, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and a review, uh, hopefully a good review to help other people find it. Uh, this is really helpful when we're starting out with a new show to help people connect with the podcasts who are already listening to similar podcasts. We would love to stay in touch with you, so shoot us an email at info at generationjoshua.org or follow us at Generation Joshua on Instagram and Facebook. We will be back soon with another episode.